0: Pardon your heart with you your family, but in the blink of the night it's all gone.
1: It's one and done TV. Hello and welcome to One and Done TV. I am one of your co-hosts, Ian Hamilton. And I am his get down brother, John Polking. And this is the podcast where we review television shows that only lasted one season, were canceled mid-season, or, you know, they just they didn't make it. They didn't quite make the cut, and uh, even if people liked them or didn't like them, it doesn't matter, because they didn't get another shot. Right, John? Right. We are doing the hustle
0: on the graves of these shows, and we are examining what they did, what they left behind, and ultimately what made them want it done. Today we're talking about Netflix's 2016 epic musical drama, The Get Down. Lot to talk about there. But before we get into that show, Ian, hey, Bud, Frendo, what you watching?
1: Uh, was that Frendo, like in No Country for Old Men? No. Thing this, you were doing there? No, this
0: is like a nicer friendo. I think my No Country for Old Men would be Friendo.
1: Friendo. Yeah, it'd be it'd be more sinister for sure. Yeah. Um in preparation for the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power coming out, uh very soon after this recording. I am back in a Lord of the Rings phase of my life. Um like during the pandemic and right before that, I reread the books. And it's like every couple of years I just come back to my Lord of the Rings fandom. And recently I have just been Playing video games and watching Lord of the Rings lore videos on YouTube. (laughs) Like, where did Gandalf come from? And let's talk about the dragons and where the dragons come from. And uh, what are the undying lands that the elves go to look like? Questions that keep us all up at night. Did you know that Gandalf had one of the elven rings of power the whole time?
0: Whoa, 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 whoa,
1: what? I love that stuff. Um, so that's been pretty much consuming my extra time the last week and a half. What about you?
0: Um, well, I've exclusively been watching The Hobbit, The Battle of Five Armies uh, 16 no, times what? over. No, of course not. <laughs> Why would I ever do that? Why would anyone do that?
1: Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: I was jumping the gun on there. Yeah, that's a lot. No, but speaking of jumping the gun, I've been wa- I have been watched uh, On the Count of Three, Gerard Carmichael's uh, directorial feature debut. Oh, yeah. That's a movie, right? Yeah, it's a movie about a double suicide pact. So, Okay. Classic. Hijinks ensue, as they often do. It is, yeah, Gerard Carmichael uh, and another guy who plays his friend. He was on Girls. I can't remember his name. They basically decide to kill each other in a double suicide pack at the end of the day. And so it's kind of a one last day sort of thing. And it is- So it's a romp. Yeah, it's a romp. Uh, And it is uh, dark in in case uh, that wasn't clear from my description of the general logline. It wasn't the best thing. It was ambitious in terms of its tone. I don't think it landed everything that it wanted to. And I thought the ending in particular was a little, there was some stuff left to be resolved that Mm -hmm. I wish would have been a little bit more tightly resolved, but Gerard Carmichael, I mean, we've talked about him on the show as particularly... I worked
1: his stand-up special
0: eight. Yeah. We talked about it on the Zack Stone is going to be famous episode, and I... I admire the absolute heck out of him and everything he does. And he actually turns out a he's always been a great stand-up, cool voice. He turned out a great performance in this movie too.
1: You know what else was ambitious? Was there was a Lord of the Rings lore video where this guy mm. tried to map out what would happen if Gandalf took the Ring of Power. And I was calling it a lore video, but then my friend was arguing with me and saying it was fan fiction. And I was like, no, but he uses the timeline of everyone else's movements and other Tolkien writings to justify what he has to say. And I think he does a pretty good job, John. That's fan fiction. No, it isn't. That's
0: fan fiction. Yes, you are using what's already established to create your own reality. That is fan fiction.
1: I think it's both. I think it can be both. I don't think it's strictly fan fiction. Well, if, you if you're arguing video, about
0: one or the other, I'm not going to watch the video just to say that. If you are debating the merits between one or the other, if you need to create that binary, I would say that's fan fiction.
1: So he uses the lore in order to create a fanfic alternate reality. Yes. Your friend is right.
0: You are wrong. Mm, still a lore video, though. Is it classified as a
1: lore video? He was just arguing with me about the word lore, and I was like, look, it brings plenty of Middle Earth lore to the center of its argument, so I think it's fine. Is it, though? Because you're bringing it up in a public forum right
0: now, and you seem a little bitter.
1: Um, I mean, I think you're making a pretty good case, but I don't think that means it's not lore. Again, I wasn't the one that created the binary here. You did. You know what? I don't think it's a binary either. He created the binary.
0: Well, look at us. I'm
1: saying Lord of the Rings, lore, and fanfic is a spectrum.
0: All right. Shout it to the rooftops, bud. But I think uh, we'll leave that debate for the YouTube videos that you're going to watch because right now it's Wicca Wicka Showtime.
1: Five, four, three, two, one. Showtime.
0: I said a hip. Hop a hippie, a hippie to the hip hip hop, and you don't stop a rockin' until you do when you get canceled after one two part, 11 episode season by Netflix. And that is exactly what happened with the 2016 and 2017 one and done show, The Get Down.
1: I can't wait to hear you justify the fact that we're watching a show with a part one and a part two as a one and done show, John. This is a one
0: season show there is a lot a lot of time and resources and story and characters and actors and creatives that went into this thing to make this one season of television that did debut in two parts there has been two part seasons before this there's been two part seasons after this
1: i don't uh, understand breaking what the confusion Bad is. season 5 mad men season 7 sopranos season 6 But never a season one, John. Never
0: a season one. And it was a first for Netflix as well. Uh, This was actually, fun fact, this is Netflix's first one-and-done original show. Hmm. Everything before that, they'd at least given two seasons to.
1: Yeah, this was the time when Netflix was like, we should be canceling more shows. We should be taking big risks and cutting them out at the knees. Yes, exactly.
0: They put that in all of their marketing. It was very much a part of their identity. No, it was a kind of interesting time, though, because they had invested a lot in these sort of big-budget dramas. Uh, Marco Polo, I remember, was right around this time as well. They were still coasting off of the success of House of Cards and Orange is the New Black. They had their Marvel shows coming out, like Daredevil and Jessica Jones were in the years before this as well. And the get down was this other sort of big swing that came from the mind of auteur Baz Luhrmann, the filmmaker behind Romeo and Juliet, Moulin Rouge, The Great Gatsby, uh, Strictly Ballroom, Elvis, which we've talked about on the podcast before. Oh,
1: yeah. We love Elvis. We did
0: love Elvis. We stand Elvis here except for one of our listeners does not stan elvis uh melissa texted me separately saying you really like elvis question mark and i said dang skippy big yes
1: um interesting thing about when the get down was coming out there were a lot of 70s shows going on at the time as well yeah it's like there was a back-to-back-to-back of vinyl which was also one and done then the get down Uh, Then The Deuce, which I am heavily featured on as an extra in season one. Ian's fourth build. No big deal. Right. Uh, I did get a close-up by David Simon, okay? Yeah, you did. It's just me there. And Ian Uh, goes, oh. Oh. And uh, so it's interesting because there were a lot of 70s shows shooting in New York at the time. and. So I was kind of around a lot of people that were in all three of these shows or either as extras or as bit players or, you know, whatever, crew. It was just the 70s in New York again. It was this weird – I don't know if it was nostalgia or – I do actually think politically there's something about 2016 that made everybody (laughs) – I feel like it was the grimy old seventies again. Uh, so artistically, that vibe kind of came back yeah. in fashion and in pop culture, um, which is pretty interesting. So this was a seventies time in the twenty first century, and it was peak
0: Ian sort of Muppet hair as well. You uh, you were a real character then. You
1: you wish you could have that Muppet hair. I
0: did. I do. I lost it very early. Way earlier than you did. You got the glory days. My, the best I got was
1: shaggy, like slightly unkempt.
0: You were feathered.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, my hair was past my shoulders at one point. There's some high definition pictures of me in the deuce with peak hair, and I'm very happy about that.
0: I'm glad you got your glory days solidified in that way. Immortalized. Go on. Im- <laughs> So this was a project that was started by Boz Lerman. He said he'd been ruminating on it for like a decade. And there was an original sort of showrunner that was an early part of the development of the show named Sean Ryan. Uh, but then he presumably got fired from the show. This will be kind of a running motif. There were a lot of production delays that went into mm. the creation of the show. And so... The writer that was brought in to help co-create and is co- credited with co-creating the show is a playwright named Stephen Adley Girgis, I believe is how you pronounce his last name, who wrote some great plays. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner, I think, for a play called Between Riverside and Crazy and also wrote a play called The Mother Effort with the Hat, which was Oh, really you wonderful. saw that at Steppenwolf. I did. Fun fact, with Jimmy Smits, who is one of the key characters in the, the Get Down. Whoa.
1: Yeah. So that was a fun connection to make. So they went in. Oh, the and- guy who plays Ed Koch in The Get Down, I saw him on Broadway in Network. So oh, fun. there you go.
0: Look at that. We're making sideways connections everywhere. But there was a lot of power that sort of went into the making of this show, like, and especially a lot of sort of big figures in – the hip-hop world, like Nas was an executive producer, Grandmaster Flash, who is one of the characters in the show, was a hip-hop consultant on the show. There was a lot of attention brought to the authenticity of this period. And just for a little background, the Get Down takes place in the late 70s in the Boogie Down Bronx, which was marked at the time with decaying buildings and an overflow of graffiti. The show follows the rise of hip-hop and sort of the heights of disco through the eyes of a group of teenagers who become increasingly more established and successful in their corners of the music industry. So I thought it would be a good time to establish the characters, specifically the teenagers. Our main character is Ezekiel. uh, Zeke, played by Justice Smith, who you might know from the last two Jurassic World movies. He was also in another one-and-done show called Generation last year.
1: Yeah. Did they take that one off HBO Max, too? They might have. I don't they know. They might have. Yeah, they might have. Wow. <sighs> so much happening. I mean, also, I did not see the last Jurassic World movie. Thank you. I am not going to give them any money for their garbage they keep peddling out.
0: That's a smart move. It is a, is a tough, tough watch. Zeke's MC name is Books, and that's really because he's sort of the poet, Of the group, really. He's book smart. He is book smart. Very school smart, but doesn't want to speak up in class. That is his kind of reserved nature that he kind of comes out of his shell and finds his art through the world of hip hop.
1: I think it also is like he wants to look tough and reading his award winning poetry in class in front of everybody does not exactly seem tough.
0: No, it does not especially when his poetry is super intimate about his parents' death. And he currently lives with his aunt and her boyfriend as well in the Bronx. And he's also in a romantic entanglement with Mylene, who's played by a newcomer. Her name is Horizon uh, Guardiola. She hasn't really been in anything before, but she is a singer in her father's church, they have this sort of on-again, off-again relationship throughout the entire show, and we'll get into it, but she definitely has a path of her own. What did you think about Mylene?
1: Oh, I loved Mylene's storyline. Um, Giancarlo Esposito plays her pastor dad, and that was a strong performance, obviously. Yeah. he Giancarlo always brings it. Mylene was, um, I would not have been able to tell that it was her first role, really. I thought she was a very strong performer.
0: Yeah, she has to go through a lot and has to have a strength to her while also being thrown around by everyone in her life. Her her dad, this uh, very righteous pastor. Uh, her mom is very supportive of her, but she also is kind of under the thumb of her uncle, whose name is Francisco Cruz. He's played by... Jimmy Smith's, who is sort of this community leader of the South Bronx and has a lot of ties politically, and he has these big, sort of grand ambitions to build up housing, particularly in the Bronx. And so but he has the ability to sort of rally the community in that big way.
1: He wants to build low-income housing that's not like a large building that would turn into a ghetto. It's like it would have its own man-made lake. There are houses that would be owned by the people. And so he's a politician that is trying to make these big dreams happen, but at the same time, do the ends justify the means Mm -hmm. um, is the question.
0: Yeah, it's a big question and a lot of passion from a lot of these characters, including Zeke's other love of his life not in a romantic way, in a friendship way. Shaolin Fantastic, which may be one of the greatest names of a character ever.
1: Oh, yeah. I I love that. And his shoes,
0: obviously. Great shoes. Great, great shoes. He's played by Shamik Moore, who most people would recognize as the voice of Miles Morales in the Spider-Verse movies. I still
1: haven't seen it. What? Yeah. I know. I'm a monster. You
0: haven't seen Into the Spider-Verse? No. Oh, my God.
1: God. Everyone tells me it's amazing. I yeah, still haven't,
0: and they're right.
1: And I want to see it. It's just one of those movie oversights. I still haven't seen it. I, I will.
0: Boo, boo, everyone booing, and at the same time, boo, boo. I hope you hear it. I hope you hear it one day. I hope you hear somebody booing on the street, and they've got headphones in, and then they look into your apartment, and they go,
1: "Ugh." That would be quite the coincidence. That would be
0: fun. But Shaolin is a graffiti artist to start off with, a drug dealer primarily, uh, but he is also, at his heart, a DJ, and he wants to spin records. But he is also entangled in the sort of drug trade of the South Bronx, which here is fictionalized by uh, this character Fat Annie, played by Lilius White, and her son, Cadillac, played with a plum by Yahya Abdul-Mateen II from Watchmen and... Candyman. Yeah. I love Yahya Abdul-Mateen,
1: man. Oh, he's incredible in everything. I mean, first of all, his dancing in this show is incredible. So good.
0: So is Shaolin. Uh, so is, so is Shamik Moore's.
1: He's got a pretty distinct face to me, and yet... With the beard as Cadillac, it took me a minute to recognize I had him. the
0: exact same thing. I'm such a huge fan of him, and I was just like, is that Yaya Abdul-Mateen? And it was.
1: Yeah, even though he's distinct, he did a good job of disappearing into the character a bit. It was cool. hmm And
0: Fat Annie is, yeah, this sort of sits on the couch, lets everyone else do her bidding, sort of big drug kingpin. Cadillac is the I'm-gonna-shoot-you-for-fun sort of scary kind of gangster. And so Shao is sort of using them to get the money to help fuel his music career, but also is definitely hardened by his life and his incorporation with that family.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's basically Annie's personal prostitute. Oh, yeah. And he doesn't have a family and he doesn't really know what love is because... She has, I mean, Annie's basically groomed him.
0: Oh, yeah. Not basically, almost like textbook elite.
1: uh, Yeah, exactly. And so he's giving Zeke all season a hard time for being so into Mylene. And it's not really till the end of the season that I was like, oh, it's because
0: he was groomed. Yeah. Yikes. They do slow play that sort of revelation a lot, which...
1: um. A bit ickier than the time traveler's life. Oh, a possibly. lot. Yeah, yeah. A I lot don't know. Itchier. I don't know. It's uh, there are parallels there.
0: <laughs> there definitely are. Uh, but Shellin does eventually find sort of a chosen family with Zeke and the group that is originally called the Fantastic Four Plus One, which then turns into the Get Down Brothers. And the other brothers are played by. not like the actors are brothers, but the other three characters are brothers. We've got Dizzy, uh, played by Jaden Smith, of fame as Jaden Smith. (laughs) He is the graffiti artist of the group and really just the artist kind of weirdo, alien, sort of I don't belong on this planet kind of
1: guy. Mm -hmm. Well, his, his graffiti character is an alien in a top hat. Yeah, somebody
0: at one point calls him Mork in an Afro, which I thought was very right. apt. Yeah. And then we've got Ra-Ra, played by an actor, Skylin Brooks, who went on to have a pretty prominent role in Empire. And to me, he sort of embodies that sex-obsessed best friend trope that we've talked a lot about on the show at times. He and his little brother Boo-Boo a little bit. They're very girl crazy.
1: I didn't get that as much. I thought Ra-Ra was a bit more sensitive, though, because... He is, yeah, that's for sure. Like, I don't think he's sex-obsessed. I think that he is just good at keeping Zeke grounded to the more child, uh, to keeping Zeke grounded to what he wanted as a kid, which is to be with Mylene. Mm-hmm. You know, when they're going back and forth and Zeke is willing to give up on things, Ra Ra is there to be like, no, like remember, you're a nice person. You know this will work out. Uh, be, be more sensitive. You're right. I, I think he was sensitive. I don't know. I don't
0: for sure. I, I get that trope. I guess I just wrote that. I wrote that note early on, and so he, you're right. Though he does sort of evolve beyond that, and is sort of the the glue that holds the group together. And then there's Boo Boo. Who is played by another newcomer, Tremaine Brown Jr.? He's this sort of overzealous, you know. I'll fight you, you know. Say that to my face, kind of little kid, and everyone's like, "Ah, shut up, you, you tiny little weirdo." And, yeah, or they're,
1: or he's like really loud, and they're like, "Shut up, you're gonna get us in like major, not trouble. What's worse than trouble? <laughs> Death."
0: Like you're gonna get some 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 major major death
1: death year.
0: (laughs) It's true. He he like he at one point just like really wants to impress a girl. He's like, you know what I'm gonna do for money? Deal angel dust. And you're like, kid. You're like, you're the youngest one. (laughs) You shouldn't be doing that. Please don't. But rah-rah, boo-boo, diz, Zeke, and then Shaolin all make up this group that Drives
1: the bulk of the narrative. Really quick, I about Rah Rah and Boo Boo. I'm like, I'm trying to find it in my notes, but I can't find it anywhere. There was at one point where Zeke is kind of rapping about the group, and he's like, "Oh, Rah ras the this and that person, and Boo Boo's the this and that person." And this is maybe episode three, and I I swear I wrote this down somewhere. It was like, are they because? Up until episode four or five, I didn't feel like they really had many distinguishing features from everyone else.
0: Neither does Diz, except for his own sort of graffiti work, but that's outside of the group itself. Those three sort of blend into the background. There was one point where I wrote, like, what is the point of these other three characters? And they do get fleshed out a little bit more as the show goes on, for sure. Oh, definitely. But their roles in the group itself are quite minimal.
1: Oh, yeah. In part one of season one, they uh, really don't come into their own until the end. They were just like, felt like, oh, standard friend dialogue, whatever. Neither one indistinguishable from the other until they finally had time to flesh out those characters. For sure. All right. Now that we know the characters, we can talk about the plot right after this commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Ian, and I'm trying to do this commercial as quickly as possible. Please review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social at TV. Email us, oneanddonepod at gmail.com with any suggestions or thoughts. If you haven't hit the skip forward 15 seconds button yet, I will be amazed. Okay, enjoy the show. The Get Down is
0: told over the course of two parts, 11 episodes. Some of these episodes total about 95 minutes. So there is a lot of stuff that happens in the show. This is a big, epic set piece. But generally, it is kind of a, just from like looking at the arc of it, I'd say it's a pretty traditional rags to riches arc in terms yeah. of their success and their place in the industry.
1: There's even a little bit of Romeo and Juliet West Side Story in there. Mm -hmm.
0: So I thought it'd be good as we break down the plot to kind of break it into two parts that constantly overlap. So there's really the story of the birth of hip-hop in the Bronx, and then there is the place of disco in pop culture. And so the hip-hop part follows the boys the the get down brothers as they turn into One, two, three. The boys learn the ways of the turntable from Grandmaster Flash and work their way up through the hip hop scene first battling other crews in the street then through a club that they basically like own and run and then finally through uniting the whole Bronx scene all while getting sort of directly and indirectly involved in the drug scene under the thumb of this kingpin Fat Annie. So it's about the pursuit of art versus the pursuit of money. What's going to what's going to win out? And yeah, and all, being
1: what other people want you to be versus being what you want to be.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so there's a few sort of big overarching highlights. The first is, you know, Shaolin Fantastic over the course of the season becomes more and more ingrained in Fat Annie's world. And this comes up a lot. He basically uses their shows to deal coke to most of the Bronx that presumably shows up to their shows.
1: It was an interesting revelation to me when we saw that they were smuggling the coke through the records mm-hmm. and the record uh slips covers i think they're slips
0: we could call them covers though just to be clear
1: the cardboard you know the uh, thing, thing with the, the, the picture the, on the, it that holds the record
0: yeah the the whats a call it that goes in the boop and then nap. <laughs> poop no boop not poop with a thank B. you yeah okay. i thought that, that no that's an important clarification for sure that was kind of cool yeah, because Shaolin first gets introduced to the rest of the friends. Like the, those other four guys, like grew up together and they hear sort of the myth of Shaolin Fantastic, the elusive graffiti artist with the red pumas who jumps through uh, all the territories in the hood and can get away with anything because he's so fast.
1: Right. It's kind of interesting because they start out with Shaolin's myth. Right. I mean, yeah, we first see him as this graffiti artist who is able to run away from the cops and whoever and put his tag anywhere and everywhere he wants because he's so lithe Mm -hmm. and everybody's heard of him, and he's like this whisper that no one actually knows him. Yeah. And then and, like, Grandmaster Flash is kind of whispering in his ear, like, this is how you become a DJ. But they talk in uh, Bruce Lee karate-isms. Yeah. So, at first, I didn't really know what was going on between them <laughs> uh, until it was revealed by the end of the first episode. But it's kind of interesting because Shaolin starts out that way and then just kind of becomes this emotional... 25 something year old guy who's hanging out with a bunch of teenagers.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's true. You Shaolin kind of gets ingrained with this group because he he has the the skills, he thinks, to sort of become a Grandmaster Flash spinner, scratcher of records, a DJ, but he also knows that he needs somebody to. Spit the rhymes, do the words, find himself a wordsmith. And when he hears Ezekiel sort of just kind of casually saying poetry, then he's like, oh, I need this guy. And it is.
1: Oh, yeah, very casually with uh, a knife to his throat.
0: <laughs> I forgot that's how it started. Yeah. Yeah, that's how they
1: meet pretty Under much. Under duress.
0: Yeah. Uh, it And it all, it all is kind of heightened in that big sort of way there's a lot of just there's a lot of wild violence that happens in the show because of the drugs i I almost forgot that they shoot a cat in the last episode through a bag my goodness Uh, and
1: some of that knife interaction oh did you write it down yeah what does he say to him he says stab your hat into my love i'm in love so you better kill me put me out of my misery And I was like, stab your hate into my love. Interesting. Yeah. As
0: we all say, as opposed to, please, please don't stab me with that knife. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Or go ahead. Just take the wallet. I don't care. Go ahead. It's a lot of like, like, you're going to have to kill me. There's a lot of that language that kind of gets thrown around. Like, you want to kill me? Kill me.
1: Yeah. There's a like, if you're going to pull a gun on me, you better use it. Yeah.
0: And the show does an interesting job, too, of creating these, like, fictional characters, your your fat annies, but you also, they talk a lot about, like, Nikki Barnes, who was running, who was actually running the drug scene in Harlem in the 70s, and, you know, they use these real sort of what are kind of founding members of hip-hop, Grandmaster Flash, Cool Herc, Africa Bambaataa. These are all guys that were actually around during the the sort of emergence of the scene there. And for me it's a pretty effortless merging of them. Like I as someone that isn't very fluid in the history of hip-hop at least in those kind of early stages, it all felt very nicely tied together and it all made sense in a certain way.
1: John, where your knowledge of 90s sitcoms drop off? Do you pick up with 90s hip-hop? Of course,
0: yeah, it is a it's a seamless transition.
1: So Will Smith being the bridge to both worlds,
0: and Jaden Smith being the bridge in this show, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I thought it would be a good time to just talk about some of the highlights.
1: Highlights. Highlights.
0: Highlight. Highlight. Speaking of kind of emerging of historical things, the the summer of 1977, the blackout that blew out all of New York City. The
1: summer of Sam. Yeah. Which they the, don't bring up, but that is the summer of Sam. Mm-hmm.
0: And there's all this looting that happens in the Bronx and this emergence of all these different crews that pop up around these hip hop crews that pop up around the Bronx because so many people were like stealing turntables and mixers and stuff. I thought that was fascinating.
1: Yeah, I thought it was pretty great that after the blackout there were just all of these uh products being sold openly on the street that everybody knew was stolen but nobody cared cuz there was too much of it to really crack down on,
0: which also leads into this idea of like bootlegging and like who owns art and especially when you have a music scene that was founded on the basic mixing of other people's music and scratching records and trying to put your own stuff on top of it. It's like, what is yours and what is somebody else's? Which was, I think, a big sort of running question throughout the show.
1: That's really good, John. I I didn't think of it like that, but that's true.
0: There's a a lot of stuff happening in this show, including while they're balancing all this other stuff too, we've got Ezekiel, who is the book smart one trying to get into college and his pursuits of going to Yale, which is a big sort of driver for him. He sees himself as this, and he talks about it in this college essay that we hear from him. He he sees himself as sort of his own duality. Like he can go into Manhattan. He literally works in the World Trade Center and has an internship and works for a person who works for the mayor, Ed Koch, and basically is this sort of ghetto poster child for the mayoral campaign, right? Like, that's how they sort of tout him.
1: That's how he says it. And then they're like, no, 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 it's not like that at all. And then it totally is that way. And uh, first of all, that guy that plays the rich guy that's trying to get him into Yale. He's got a great character name.
0: name. His, His character name is Guns which wow. I, I love that and name. And then what's the actor's name? I can't remember, but I, he's one of those like every guys.
1: Yeah. He's the president in House of Cards. He oh is- Oh my God. In the first two seasons of Mr. Robot. Mm. And he plays uh, Elizabeth Smart's dad in The Dropout. Right. There's something about that actor that I absolutely love. He's Elizabeth so- Holmes's dad. Yes, thank you. Yeah. What did I say? Elizabeth Smart. I can't even remember who that is. Um, <laughs> oh, that's an actress. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, isn't that isn't she in um, Road Trip? That's Amy Smart. <laughs> hmm. Let's get back well, to this anyway. actor you love, yeah. Anyway, I don't know, because he is like, oh, look at me, I'm the rich guy, I'm the guy in power and everything he plays, but he also has a kind of softness to him, that makes you think maybe he's a nice guy. And I think he does well in these characters because he's not so over the top, like, look at me. I'm the bad guy here. I'm the person with authority that you shouldn't like. It's like, "Eh, everything you know about me means you shouldn't like me, but look at me. I'm just this nice guy with integrity. He's a very
0: disarming sort of person. But when you hear some of the things he says in the positions that he has, he's like, Oh, my mentor is Robert Moses, who is the sort of architect of what some people call like the revitalization of New York. But also he's the guy that basically wanted to build a bridge that went over Manhattan to go over like all the, you know, sort of, quote unquote, undesirable neighborhoods. And stuff so Yeah, he's he, the
1: one that made the parkways to the bridges over the parkways too short, so that city buses couldn't get out to the beaches.
0: Exactly. So he is this sort of ends the ends justify the means sort of architect of and this idea of power, and so he doesn't overtly say it, but you you could see why people would get comfortable with this guns guy as a character. And
1: and Zeke does. And Zeke does. He's a powerful force in Zeke's life because he's like, how much do you want it? How bad do you want your dream? Which is also going on in Mylene's life,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that through line. He also tells him, he's like, you're going to have to make a decision when people you love or whatever are going to be against something you want. And you're going to have to basically be vicious to get what you want. They were talking about a brand of pianos. And he goes, I have four pianos. Do you know how I got those? And he goes, uh, by being really wealthy and buying them? He's like, no, it's because today I got up and I closed down one of the hospitals in your district. I blocked the teacher's union from getting a raise. And that was before noon. That's how I bought those pianos. He's like, look, I have the keys to everything you want. But if, you want to get what you want. You have to be the person you don't want to be.
0: That's the position that guns puts Zeke in. At least that's how Zeke sort of eventually kind of sees himself. He's like, do, do I want to be a black man in a white man's world? Or do I want to form my own kingdom? And that's where he sees the potential for partnering with Shaolin. And that's how it all kind of comes to a head too. that, that moment of choosing comes in about as dramatic of a fashion as possible when Zeke is at a Yale mixer beating alumni. Xiao comes in to take Zeke away to a gig, and they're fighting in the bathroom, and they're wrestling, and they knock over these rich boys' coke, and the rich boys, in their perfect sort of rich boy accent, hey, you don't know who my dad is. We settle things internally. And then Xiao led pulls a gun on these guys and they basically piss themselves and they are able to run away. And this guy guns is like, you're going to give me the name of your friend and then everything will be gravy. And Zeke is like, no, absolutely not. And so it's a big, big turning point for Ezekiel.
1: Right. Those two uh, rich boys also happen to have uh, in their 10 pieces of dialogue. uh, Two of those lines are, Perfect information that we need for another storyline separately going on. Oh, yeah. (laughs) uh, From the situation, which I thought was a little shoehorned in there, but that's okay.
0: Got to drive the narrative somehow. Yeah,
1: someone's got to do it.
0: Before we move on to the next storyline, the other half of the season, I do want to talk about Dizzy and his sort of relationship to graffiti and this other artist, Thor, which I thought was this cool sort of way to get into gets into sort of the ballroom scene the drag scene a little bit there's even a line where it's like what's that person doing over there and they're like that's voguing it also opens up this artistic style in the second part of the season where dizzy kind of makes these comics for this guy thor who's been jailed because he did graffiti it's a weird sort of sideways way into this other big thing That's happening in New York at the time.
1: And that is in parallel with, narratively, it keeps coming up that like all the main disco DJs are gay. Um, They start talking about homosexuality a lot more. And Mylene needs to get her music into the club, but you like need... In the narrative of a lot of other storylines, homosexuality and the importance of it in the disco scene and in the DJ scene in order to get your music out there or for people to dance to it or for you to be famous, you're going to have to have basically the gays like your music. Mm -hmm. And then that's also when Dizzy is kind of coming out of his shell and maybe sort of uh, discovering that he may in fact... The, on the queer spectrum. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's a cool way to also kind of bring in this idea of, you know, where culture starts and that how it gets sort of built up. Because there's even a point where, and we'll get into this in a second, but this record label guy basically says, well, you need to have the gays in order to make sure that it goes into the pop culture, but it's not going to be a gay record. It is going to – but it it all starts – all this culture starts from this one group that is so often ignored or, you know, marginalized by so many other people.
1: Look, throughout the show, they are using the gay F-word very loosely.
0: Very loosely.
1: And so – and then also there is the preacher who doesn't want his daughter to go to these drug dens and gay clubs and – it's interesting that they put a highlight on like, okay, well, you don't like them. Clearly, everybody is making fun of them and putting them down or whatever, but you need them if you want to achieve your dream, Mm -hmm. which was very interesting.
0: Absolutely. And that kind of, I think, gets us into the other part of the season, which is the sort of Mylene storyline. The Mylene of it all. This is kind of like the disco side of things. So by this point, disco has been on the rise. Saturday Night Fever has already come out. I think it's just come out. And Mylene, throughout the course of the show, works her way up in the disco world, all while dealing with the controlling influences of her powerful uncle, Francisco, who we just talked about, her righteous father, Giancarlo Esposito, uh, a label head and a record producer, as she sort of shifts away from being this kind of for lack of a better term, goody-two-shoes church girl, into a real disco superstar. That's kind of her.
1: I mean, she's basically Britney Spears by the end of it. Oh, yeah. Including. The bed. (laughs) The
0: bed and one of the, the song that she sings towards the end of the show was written by Sia. Oh, wow. That toy box song that she sings
1: in the club. Yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking of, the Britney Spears of it all. Yeah. So, also those like those like sheen outfits that they're wearing mm-hmm. those are totally Britney Spears. Oh my yeah. god.
0: <laughs> and that is her general arc. One of the big things that does kind of come in and out of her life is her sort of on again off again relationship with Zeke. They start off and she's like you're holding me back and then he starts to get his own dreams and she's like well now you inspire me. And they have this sort of mutually been not mutually beneficial they they just feed off of each other's energy a lot throughout the course of the show when they're down they're down when they're up they're up and sometimes they ignore each other sometimes they forget about each other sometimes they uh, kiss julia garner as well in a weird sort of mini cameo (laughs) like zeke does but they always kind of find their way back to each other throughout the run of these episodes.
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean, they had a bit of a Romeo and Juliet thing going on. Not that they were, it wasn't a rich, poor, like, it's not like their families were feuding. It was just that as much as they want to be together, everyone in their families or whatever, like your priorities should be here, not with this girl or, or, you know, you keep getting dragged away from what you're doing in order to be with her. She keeps being dragged away from what she's doing to be with him. And they break up and get together pretty much every episode. Yeah. But they don't exactly break up and they don't exactly get together. It's like they're never quite official, but they're always in each other's lives. But they are linked. Oh, They're star-crossed.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's doing all this, too, while balancing her relationship with her parents. She's got her mother, Lydia, I believe is her name, who very supportive, very understanding and her righteous father who viciously beats her. Oh, and his wife and also had apparently previously abandoned two children before he had Mylene. That was
1: quite a reveal.
0: It was. He is a about as stereotypical of a hypocrite as you will ever see. He yeah,
1: and like the whole righteous Christianity of it all. He comes at it with both cylinders. Mm-hmm.
0: He runs this mega church, and he basically exploits Mylene's fantastic singing talents. She really does have a amazing voice, mm-hmm. and exploits her talent and her success in order to grow the scope of his church. And he's like, we're doing this to get followers and bring people over to Jehovah. But he only does it because she increasingly gets more and more success.
1: Right. But it's all for him. He justifies everything by saying it's for God or Jesus. But really, he's being completely selfish and uh, and a monster, you know.
0: Which, as with all... Um, great things, drives his wife into the loving arms of his brother.
1: And right. could easily have been an Emmy for Giancarlo Esposito as well. I mean. He is. He pulls
0: out all the Espositos.
1: He is so good
0: at everything. Espositoisms. Yeah. He he does the shouting well. He does the the scary smiling well. He really hits all of his uh, sweet spots, except for maybe oh, yeah. the scowl. But yeah, that one. Ian's making a good Giancarlo Esposito scowl right now.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm trying too hard now. I'm in my head. I can't. <laughs> You're do it in your as head. Well. Of course. Yeah. I- I'm always good at impressions like that. It's like the first one when I'm not thinking about it, good. Then I start thinking about it, it gets worse and worse.
0: Yeah. We've all seen the millionth iteration of your Robert De Niro. Yep. There it is. There it is. This is, this is great for an audio medium. So as she's kind of dealing with her her family stuff, She's she kind of gets a connection to this record producer, Jackie, who is just a drugged up gambling mess by the beginning of the season. But he's got this like talent that's to write these sort of softer ballads
1: twice in the show. He basically catches lightning in a bottle mm-hmm. and writes these mega hits Uh, on his feet. You know, he's grinding and grinding, trying to write good music, but then he's in a situation that forces him to create some passionate music, and uh, that's when he really shines. Otherwise, he's a degenerate mess.
0: Yeah, for sure. What did you think of her original songs? Like, the Set Me Free is the one big one that is sort of her hit, and then there's the one that kind of ends the show, which is, I think it's called See You on the
1: Other Side. I mean... Since we're like 50 minutes into this, I'm okay with saying, I thought I much preferred the disco side of things to the hip hop side of things. Okay. Um, I thought that the Mylene storyline and the music was very strong. And the disco sequence in the first episode was incredible.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah. So they're at this club that's owned by Fat Annie and Cadillac. It's called Les Inferno which apparently is based on a real-life club called Disco Fever.
1: Or oh, at Oh, sure.
0: Yeah. And, yeah, it's this beautiful sort of scene where Cadillac is trying to show his sort of disco prowess as Zeke has tried to win over Mylene with this record that he, well, he tried to buy but was still actually stolen. That is her favorite record. And... Yeah, that no, It's it, there are some really mesmerizing musical I, sequences in the show.
1: I wrote down in my notes, I was like, oh, DJ Malibu, best character. And then I was like, oh, wow, it's Billy Porter. No wonder I love it so much. And then I was like, oh, wait, he's dead. <laughs> it's a lot. Well, there it's goes a, my favorite part of the show so far. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's a big impression early on. Oh, uh, yeah. But it's this really cool kind of evolution, too, that my lead takes from being a sort of exclusively gospel singer, which she does feel comfortable with, but does still love disco. And then it sort of becomes gospel disco, and then it becomes disco gospel, and then it just becomes full disco. And then she meets this basically, she signs on to this record label, Marrakesh Records, with this sort of very stereotypical Eric Bogosian type. Uh, Roy, who's played by Eric (laughs) Bogosian.
1: He is an Eric Bogosian type, isn't he? (laughs) Yeah. And you might know him from Succession or uh, what's the Adam Sandler movie? Diamonds? Uncut Gems. Thank
0: you. And he really, he literally says, like, she needs to get sexed up. You're like, yeesh. Yikes. Yeah. And that's pretty
1: much his character.
0: That's exactly his character. Oh man, so lots of stuff happening in this show, but generally, we start with them being not successful, we get to both groups being relatively successful, there's room to grow, but there's also room to give out some awards, which we are going to do right after this commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. It's time for the Dunzo Awards. These are the superlatives that we give out to every show we watch. It could be the best, it could be the worst, it could be the most, it could be the weirdest, whatever it may be. We have decided to give elements of The Get Down, or the entire show of The Get Down, some recognition. Uh, Each of us gets two Dunzo Awards to give out to this show.
1: Ian, what is your first Dunzo Award? My first Dunzo Award ...is the Stella Award, which of course <laughs> is named after my one of my all-time favorite comedies, Stella, starring Michael Ian Black, David Wayne and Michael Showalter. I give the Stella Award out to the last episode because the show ends very much like how every episode of Stella ends where everyone sings, learns a lesson, tells off the authorities, gets everything they want, then cheers. Yay! (laughs) That is true. That is how the season ended. It was with like every storyline, too. Then there's a little bit left afterwards. I mean, I wrote down for the finale. I was like, when is this going to end? It was like the end of Lord of the Rings, to bring it back, it was like, oh, blackout, it's over. Oh, here comes another scene. Blackout. Okay, that's it. Oh, wow. Okay, one more scene. Blackout. Okay, two more scenes?
0: <laughs> but there is some dark stuff that happens after, like, the bigger sort of celebratory stuff. Like, so the finale ends with, um, the boys are kind of on the run from Cadillac and Fat Annie after Shaolin, beats the crud out of Fat Annie uh, because she won't let him go. They
1: signed them into a contract that they didn't want to use because the purity of their music was at stake, John. Of course. And if they made a record with a band instead of a DJ, then the purity of everybody's music was at stake, everyone in the whole borough. So they banded together. And
0: they put together this huge concert and they scared off Cadillac. Cadillac said, I'm leaving Fat Annie, and I'm going to make my own record label work, which I believe it's called Super High Voltage Records, which is another great name. And so they're happy. But then we got Boo Boo getting arrested for PCP. Mm -hmm. Diz might be going to jail for graffiti because he's being chased off by the cops at the end there.
1: Right. And for a second, I was like, are they going to kill Dizzy with a subway train? I really. Yeah, they don't. They don't say that either. No, but it really seemed like they were about to.
0: Yeah. But Zeke does get accepted to Yale. Mylene is recording her big record. But then they kind of throw this like little shade at the very in the like final tag of the episode, because this whole thing is about the purity of their music is they can't use a band. Fat Annie wants to bring in a band so they can record this hip-hop record. They're not going to do it. And then they say, like, nine months later, Rapper's Delight came out, and it used a band. And then that's the end of the series.
1: Right. A little strange. And then Mylene goes off to California to film the movie, and her and Zeke have to be like, we'll still be together, even though I'm going to Yale and you're going to California, right? And they're like, yeah, right? And everyone watching is like, we're going to have at least two seasons of you two not being together.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: The movie that she is filming,
0: too, is called Gone with the Solar Wind, which is a space age disco opera.
1: Which Right. Probably a Xanadu type. Oh, yeah. Have you ever seen Xanadu? No. No, I haven't. I haven't, and I wouldn't suggest it, but <laughs> our friend Robbie that we talk about, they play it on their TV at their house sometimes, and there is a very wild roller disco scene at the end that's like 20 minutes long. Um, I think I do want to watch it with the sound off at some point. I think that's Because it's pretty crazy. Um, I would say that that bad stuff, though, at the end, it's more like it's setting up for season two, setting up the problems of season two, rather than the yay, everything's great sequence was more like the end of all the problems of season one if that makes sense. hmm Yeah, the bad stuff was the epilogue. Totally get that. John,
0: what's your first dunzo? I'm going to do something radical here. I'm going to give a tie. <gasps> and the tie is for... Goes to the runner.
1: Oh,
0: sorry. <laughs> the tie is for the greatest one-scene character. And the first one goes, of course, to DJ Malibu, who we oh, were just talking course. about. Billy Porter just crushes this scene. He talks with his teeth first and is just this coked out mess who speaks in just like rhymes and riddles. Like he, at one point, he says, They call me the best. I pass every test. I done ripped off the S off Superman's chest. And he says every line like that and that he says some lines that I definitely can't say on Mike. And then just – he's just shouting and screaming and snorting lines and then he just gets blown away by some guns. And it is a beautiful explosion. It is – I was just like, bravo, Billy, bravo.
1: The way he falls over the turntable with his – mouth agape eyes wide and his gigantic afro you know it was just so it was over the top but because it's billy porter it plays organically
0: it was high school theater that would win a tony
1: Dude, I'm glad you said he talks with his teeth, too, because I noticed that, like, (laughs) there's this thing he could do with his mouth that I was, like, so jealous of where it's like he can make a square with his lip. He's the predator of people. Yeah. (laughs) And I was just like, wow, that is so impressive to me. I wish I could do that. Oh, God. What's the other one?
0: That is tied with a character who I believe is credited as Lucian. And he is basically the MC from Cabaret, but he sings at this club in the second part of the season called the Ruby Con. So they keep, he has a musical number. He is in sort of all white, pasty makeup, very much like if you've ever seen Cabaret, just like the MC. He's strutting up and down this runway. And he is, it's supposed to be this like Studio 54 type club, except wilder. And he sings this song where he's just touting around and he goes, if you ever really want to get it on, you're going to have to cross your Rubicon. And then he has everybody sing with him. And then he goes, sing my babies. And then he said, come to daddy.
1: It's And he got the whole crowd to be like, cross your Rubicon or something like that. Exactly. And then he's got lines
0: like this in the song, which I had to write down. Will you take off your clothes and have a little toot? Will you writhe on the floor and lick her boot? (laughs) Just like, what is happening? But I was so entertained. Bless you. Uh, Did you
1: you look up what uh, Rubicon meant? Because I no. had to look up a Rubicon. I know it's another one and done show we have to do. And <laughs> I've actually used it. There was a sketch that we used to do uh, back when I used to do sketch comedy a lot that we'd always have the company named Rubicon because it just sounded like a the name of a company. Yeah. Uh, I guess it is a threshold that you cross. That's what a Rubicon is. Um, mm-hmm. But I thought that song was so bad. Oh, my God. <laughs> I hated that song. I was like, yeah, you're going to get everybody jazzed up about the word Rubicon, and you're going to use it so cleverly. Okay.
0: Which is the name of the club, too. I just had to reiterate that.
1: I thought the performance was strong. I just, uh, that song had me rolling my eyes a lot.
0: (laughs) See, I was just like completely aghast. It was wonderful. Ian, what is your second Dunzo Award? My second Dunzo
1: is the best not quite maniacal laugh. (laughs) <laughs> which goes to kind of. Which goes to um Ed Koch and uh the older the business guy guns yeah. are telling the TO, the alderman, that they're like, Oh, we'll give you the ten million to build your thing if you back Ed Koch for mayor. And they're like, here's the thing. You got to be anti-graffiti, though, because everyone loves when I'm anti-graffiti. And he goes, I'll flog the graffiti artists in the public square if Koch asked. And then they all are just like... <laughs> <laughs> if a full-on evil laugh is a 10... They were all at about a seven and like it was an over the top thing because like graffiti artist is like a pure thing. But the man is cracking down on it. You know, Dizzy and his friends are getting arrested and all that stuff. And so it's like the mo. there's so much of the show that is over the top. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, this scene decided to only go to a seven instead of a ten <laughs> on it. And, I don't remember the moment, but there was a straight up maniacal laugh at some point. I think it was from Cadillac. It was probably um, Cadillac.
0: He he's got a maniacal yeah. laugh face.
1: Yeah. RMLF. Resting maniacal laugh face.
0: <laughs> yeah, the the integration of like politics in this show I thought was interesting. And I thought they could have done a little bit more of it. They kind of abandoned it once Zeke kind of tells off guns and Basically says to Guns, you've taught me a lot and you know, you've know you got men- your mentors. Thank you for being a mentor to me, but like I don't want what you're selling. And then they just kind of leave it. Except, I guess, uh, they do basically sick the police on uh, Francisco, the T.O., as well.
1: Yeah, but even that storyline where, okay, so he keeps paying this gang. Uh, they're not the Warriors. They're or ripoff of the warriors.
0: The savage warlords.
1: Right. Which are a, the warriors ripoff. He is under the table, paying them to burn down buildings in the ghetto so that it opens up room for the complex. So he can recoup the insurance money and then build up this complex that he keeps streaming over. That's going to make the neighborhood better. Mm -hmm. So he's literally burning it down to make it better. And the thing about it is, we kind of know it's him, and then we we suspect maybe it's like Cadillac in them or something. Yeah, because Cadillac killed one of the kids, one of the warlord kids.
0: And but when we say kid, we mean like ten year olds. Yeah, we mean child.
1: Yeah. And but really, it was his associate because his associate was the one to pay the warlords to shoot up the inferno. Yeah. Which was so crazy. Um, Yeah. We only see these headlines like, oh, he's under investigation for these buildings burning down. And then at the end of it, he's arrested. And there's like a little bit of him talking about it. But I really thought they underplayed that storyline. Yeah. There were a couple
0: things like that that I think could have been built up a little bit more or
1: like addressed a little bit more regularly throughout. Yeah. The rest or even of the, the show. W- the warlords of it all, like, I feel like they were pretty heavily f- favored at the beginning of the show. Yeah. And then there was very little of them going forward. I felt like there was some drop storyline there.
0: Even this thing, like, later on in the season where we build up that Mylene's big hero is the singer, Misty Holloway. And Misty Holloway, like, shows up at the club that Mylene's about to perform at and basically, like, talks crap about My- Mylene when she's backstage about to perform and then Mylene sings and then Misty Holloway just like goes away even though Mylene is basically like taking over all of this sort of work that Misty Holloway was going to be getting. Especially when you've got an actor like Renee Elise Goldsberry, Tony Award winner for Hamilton, star of Girls 5 Eva playing this character. Like why not give them more stuff to do? Why not build that up a little bit? Because I thought that was kind of an interesting dynamic too.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was some drop stuff there. John, what's your second Dunzo, though? This ties kind of nicely into
0: my second Dunzo Award, which is the most weirdly utilized talent award. The best-named award award goes to (laughs) your award. (laughs) So this award, this particular award, that I don't need to repeat the name of it anymore.
1: We all remember it. We all remember it. It's so memorable. So good. And well put together. <coughs> Talk about wordsmith, John. You <laughs> should be the MC. All you need is a DJ. This award goes to
0: the device that's used at the beginning of each episode. Um, specifically
1: the I'm use glad of. We're talking about this.
0: David Diggs, um, who plays an older version of Books of Ezekiel. Uh, it starts off with basically books in 1997 performing at Madison Square Garden. And each episode basically opens with a rap that essentially recaps the episode that came before it, that Ezekiel is presumably rapping out to this huge crowd that he's gathered over the 20 years. Of his music career since the events of the show started, and so they cast David Diggs, who again another star of Hamilton. He's he and Renee Elise Goldsberry, and then there's Okiria uh, Te Anatuwan, who plays uh, another smaller character in there. Lots of Hamilton in this show, but it makes Diggs, sense.
1: I mean, filmed 2016 in New York.
0: Yeah, David Diggs is such a. Not just like a talented artist, he's a great actor. He is a very talented rapper in his own right. Great writer. He wrote uh, Blindspotting, which is one of my favorite movies of the last decade. And they use him on stage. They put him in a heavy leather jacket with his hood up with glasses on, so you barely recognize that it's him, except for one shot with his face that's at the end of the pilot. And they dub over his voice. And he doesn't even write the, the raps. Nas does. And Nas is the one that sort of dubbed him over, too. Which, when I was just watching it, I was like, okay, I get that you want a big rapper like Nas to be involved in this, especially Nas was like an executive producer on the show. But then why would you cast somebody like Daveed Diggs, just like shroud him in a bunch of nonsense and then not even utilize his talents?
1: It was such a weird choice to I make. mean, John, if you're gonna get nitpicky about overdubs, <laughs> uh, we're not gonna have I mean, how much time do you have? Because regular dialogue was overdubbed. I mean, there was a lot of ADR that was really a natural slapped on to fill some fill a hole somewhere. I mean And and then not to mention, you know, that's pretty normal with any musical is to lip sync in studio and then dub the vocal track over it. But uh, yeah, that's pretty strange. What did you think of this
0: uh, sort of device, though, to the rap that was used at the beginning of every episode, this framing device thing?
1: Oh, I thought it was complete garbage. It was (laughs) um, awful basically just rapped about what we were going to see. It was like, coming up on this episode of The Get Down, I there was no purpose for it. Uh, I didn't think that the rap was very good. It was, I'm going to say it, overall in the show, I didn't think the rap was very good. And that is to say that for the most part, all of it was like, this is what you're going to see. This is what you have seen. This is who I am and this is who my friends are. There's maybe, there, you know, a little bit of like poetic stuff in there. Some, you know, interesting things to say. But for the most part, it was just expositional hip hop. Yeah. And that was like offensive to me <laughs> that they would make this entire show about hip hop and then basically be like, hey, remember the last 40 minutes you just saw we're gonna tell you about it again to a beat it's a device that works
0: a little bit better when you're releasing something week to week i think because then it it's a more sort of clever utilization of the previously on montage that sometimes fills those but yeah, yeah when you're when you're binging this or you're yeah watching any number of episodes in a row you're like yeah we just we we just saw this man like we're
1: good here's the difference though john at the beginning of a normal thing that has a a previously on in a normal situation would be at the beginning of an episode. And the next time on would be at the end of an episode. In (laughs) this case, they have next time on at the beginning of the episode and previously on at the end of the episode. So they're just bookending. This is what you're going to see. Then you see it. This is what you saw. Episode's over. So infuriating to me! You're getting worked up, man.
0: You should you I, should write you should write your feelings down. You should over you two should. and a half
1: days, I watched 12 to 13 hours of the Get Down, and let me tell you, I felt trapped sometimes by that. I did <laughs> by sp- specifically the fact that this is a whole show about hip hop, and I didn't even like the hip hop, and I rarely bought them as a hip hop group. Oh God, we're gonna get into it. <laughs>
0: Well, before we get into that, I think we should talk a little bit about why the show was canceled, because maybe some people had similar feelings to you. Maybe they didn't, but we'll discover that right after this commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. The get down, as I mentioned, was a long sort of gestating project. Baz Luhrmann had it in his head for about 10 years before they did it. Netflix originally announced the show in February of 2015. They wrapped principal photography on the show in the summer of 2016. The uh, first part of the first season aired in August of 2016. Part two aired in April of 2017. And then the show was canceled in May of 2017. So lots of... It was a long time sort of coming, and it was a bit of an undertaking with everyone. Ian, would it surprise you if I told you that this was one of the least
1: expensive shows that Netflix has ever made? Yes, that would very much surprise me. Although some of the quality of some of the green screens, I don't know. Okay, then it's not going to surprise you that this is
0: one of the most expensive shows that Netflix has ever made. (laughs)
1: Yes. There we go. It actually, at the
0: time, was the most expensive show that Netflix had ever made. And one of the most expensive shows, seasons of television in the history of TV. Ian, can you guess how much these 11 episodes cost Netflix?
1: Well, I know that episodes of Breaking Bad were made for like 2 to $3 million an episode, so I'm going to go ahead and say this was 10 million an episode. Wait, wait, wait. Most expensive season of television at the time?
0: Season of television, yeah. How much do
1: you think the season? Oh, that means it was more than Game of Thrones? Uh So
0: 10 million Seasons of television for Netflix. For Netflix.
1: Okay, I'll go 10 million an episode.
0: You're actually right on the money. Yeah. Oh,
1: no way. So good feeling.
0: Yeah, but they that do is say that the way too much. The show, the final price tag for the entire season was around $120 million. Oh
1: my God.
0: Yeah. Production delays were a huge part of that. Uh, Baz Lerman also talked about how, since a lot of the cast were minors at the time, they had to work with child labor laws, which then just made them really slow on shooting. I they kind also... of assumed
1: that's what part of the comic book aspect of things was with part two.
0: Yeah, so... They had originally planned to, first of all, the original order for the show was 13 episodes, but they only made 11. And basically, they got to the release date because this, again, it's a Boz Lerman thing. It's his first TV show, it's Boz Lerman's first TV show. And so, a lot of hype around it. They had this date, they finished shooting, they were like, we're not going to have all of the episodes done. So they basically said, okay, we'll release the first six in August. We'll give you some time to finish it up later. So that's why it is one season, but it is a two-parter. And Boslerman even said, too, he's glad that they did that because they had an idea of what the second half of the season would be, but they took the time to listen to what the audience was responding to, and then they played up those parts of it a little bit more in the second part of the show. So, for example, they tried to make the Mylene and Ezekiel love story a little bit more central to the story, I guess. In in part two, at least, that's what Boz Lerman was saying. He saw audiences were reacting to was the more extravagant elements of it. So, I'm guessing that that Rubicon sequence was probably done later. They apparently didn't finish editing the show, I guess, the second part until January of 2017. So, four months after the first part aired. So, this was a very expensive endeavor. You know, like I said, they went through their first showrunner. They had a bunch of sort of delays as they were shooting. Also, Was before... the first
1: showrunner only involved in the pilot, or... I guess so. Baz Lerman okay. made... He
0: also sort of said that he had to take a more central role in the actual writing and development and shooting of the show than he initially wanted to. He, here's a quote from Baz Luhrmann from an article I, was, I read about when he was talking about the production delays. He said, there was no precedent for how you make such a music-driven show. I ultimately was asked to take the position of being responsible for everything. And yes, I am responsible for everything including saying we have to stop and get it right. So that apparently happened a few times as well. He cited one specific scene, I guess. There's a scene in the second episode where Shaolin is learning from Grandmaster Flash, basically how to scratch records and mix and isolate what is called the get down, which they explained in the show, the get down is... The part without the words in the song that people are going to dance to so you want to play that on a continuous loop and that's the get down and as they were filming the scene grandmaster flash who was a creative consultant on the show brought the entire cast into basically hip-hop camp taught them everything about rapping mixing you know break dancing all that stuff he they were filming the scene and grandmaster flash apparently was like stopping production being like that's wrong like and you are going to get destroyed online by the entire DJ community if you get this wrong. And so they had to keep stopping production for things like that that were apparently sort of hurting the authenticity of or the, the cred period, or the cred of the show that they were developing. And that's what they kind of cited when they came to all these different stops, which then just made the budget ramp up all the more as, it's, as it sort of kept gestating before it was even released I don't know what do you think about all that
1: sounds right I mean there were a lot of pieces to this show uh there were some loose ends there were there were not as many drop storylines as other shows that we've reviewed so from that regard I I I'm surprised that they could pull off so much um yeah it seemed like right from like the get-go from mm-hmm. like the
0: inception of the show, they were thinking about it on as big of a scale as they possibly could in order to tell the story.
1: Yeah, and this show is it's disjointed. I mean, there's a couple tones going on. Sometimes they're kind of like a David Simon, uh, let's look at the social structure of this area type of drama. Sometimes they were a very big, campy... Uh, musical tribute, you know, m- a lot more fun. Sometimes it was a bit more like a soap opera, like, you know, like Queens, which we just reviewed a couple weeks ago. <laughs> um, sometimes, you know, there, there was an Ordinary Joe thing where it's just like too much storyline packed into one episode. Um, So it doesn't surprise me because, and frankly, there was a lot of really bad green screen in here. That made me think they had to slap a lot of stuff together last minute.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure, too, the music budgets and the music that they wanted to incorporate in this show sort of rang up the overall budget, too.
1: You know, I feel like I'm always talking about how expensive music budgets are on this show. And it's like, I didn't want to bring it up, but of course it,
0: it is. But it was interesting, at least... Again, I don't have the familiarity with the disco era in the 70s that I know a lot of other people do, but it did seem like there was a sort of drop-off for me in terms of recognizable music as the show went along. And Baz Lerman, you know, loves to, if you look across his oeuvre, he loves to sort of blend genres and blend styles and his editing is very much timed to musical cues and he loves to sort of cross edit storylines as well. You know, basically having two scenes simu- happening simultaneously that he's cutting between in oh. order that are tied together with music.
1: In this show, there was a scene where everyone's getting offered power at the same time. Uh, yeah. She was getting offered like the opportunity to be a bigger star as long as she sexes it up. At the same time, that books is getting the opportunity to guns is giving him the opportunity to power at the same time Fat Annie is giving the opportunity to Shaolin to like basically the keys to her castle yeah. both sexually and economically. Mm-hmm. Um and they were cutting between seeds a lot, just like you were talking about.
0: Yeah. And they're that's like that's a total like Bos Lerman move and so that was another thing he was citing when it came to like the editing delays that were happening like we didn't have the shots in order to do the kinds of edits that he wanted to do at least again that's according to him there were also issues too because of the length of time that the show took in march of 2017 so a month before the second part aired SAG AFTRA pushed for arbitration, saying that the actors' contracts were being held for too long. So they were like about to so kind of similar to Why what we saw Last with White Last Man. Yeah, exactly. Too. So you had that kind of under the gun as well. There there was so much, it seemed like going into this show. And Boz Lerman, in an interview before the show was canceled, said something to the effect of The Netflix people have told me that they don't want to put this much money into characters that they want to see, like, die. Like, they, and this was back in 2017. He was very confident that they were going to do a season two. But here's the thing about season two. Boz Lerman was barely going to be involved in season two. Why? He cited that he had put off a film commitment in order to do this show. And presumably, since it's the only thing he's done since the get down, that film commitment was Elvis. He never said that explicitly at the time, but he was like, he'd never done a show before. He never wanted to be in the position of showrunner. As he said, he wanted to be Uncle Boz, essentially, (laughs) and look at edits and give feedback and be a producer, essentially, on the show but he just needed to be more and more involved as the creative turnover was happening, as the delays were happening, as the editing was not matching with stuff. And so he basically said, if there is a season two, I hope it happens, but I don't want to be like the guy for it. And he said at the time, there was somebody that he was hoping to be the showrunner for season two. Again, this was before the show got canceled. But all he said was, We have somebody in mind. It's a very famous African American director that I think would do a great job. But if we don't get them, then I don't know what we would do. Essentially, then we would need to start over. And he said that the the '80s the '80s would have been a big part of a season two. They would have jumped ahead. That's another thing we didn't mention. Part one ends in the summer of '77, and then we flash forward a year in part two to the fall of '78. So there's a bunch of stuff that happens. The show is not afraid to flash forward. And they would have done that again. I think they would have probably dove a little bit more into like the punk scene too. Because that was one of the log lines for the show actually. When it was sort of being announced like this is an exploration of hip hop, disco, and punk in the 70s and 80s in New York City. Wow. And there was barely any punk in the show.
1: But like you said, they kind of switched gears for part two based on what audiences uh, liked about the show. So they were dipping their toes into punk with yeah. Guns's daughter hanging out with Zeke.
0: Played but, by Emmy winner Julia Garner from Ozark, which was a weird like quasi-cameo to see.
1: I've actually uh, only seen the pilot of Ozark. Didn't like it. That's <laughs> not the first I, season. I need to give it a, another try, I think, but... Felt like they were trying too hard to be Giancarlo Esposito, actually, uh, in Breaking Bad. Anyway, uh, I know a lot of people like Ozark. I'll give it a chance at some point. Oh, yeah. So she was really into punk. You could see that they were going to go in that direction and Mm -hmm. that they abandoned it. That makes sense. So, yeah, there were a lot of things that went into the
0: cancellation of the show. I'm sure it would have been a very expensive undertaking for Netflix. And it's interesting to kind of see where Netflix kind of went after that, especially for it being the first one-and-done show that Netflix, it weirdly, I think, set a precedent for Netflix that they can not spend money on this stuff. And it's something that has really a mantle that I think the company, as growth has started to slow in the past couple quarters, really that they've been like, yeah, we're not going to do the big expensive, we're not going to do the Irishman anymore. We're not going to do the huge epics that are just sort of wish fulfillment for these directors that are doing big kooky projects.
1: Everyone's learning that they can just be Discovery Plus and people will stream hours and hours of their content. Bring me some Bling Empire. Let's go. John, this all leads me to a big question for you. And that is, would you... Right now. Let the record spin, baby,
0: because I want more. I would have watched it. Wow. When I pulled the show back up to watch it for the for this show, my Netflix account reminded me that I had watched the first 20 minutes of the pilot way back when, like when it first aired. And... I really think that the one hour and 35 minute pilot that this show starts with is such a freaking deterrent Mm. to get any sort of major investment from a user's perspective. Like that is a huge undertaking for people to watch a show or a movie, like basically a movie's worth of story. That is only the first part of 11 going forward. And I know I felt that when I first watched it, but when I saw the whole thing together, when I had to sit down and watch it all. Oh, you had to get down? I had to get down and I did get down. I thought the the musical scenes were really cool. I thought the characters were compelling. I I thought a lot of the acting was really solid too. I think especially Shamik Moore as Shaolin Fantastic. I thought... He was just electric from the first sort of few scenes with him. I really found his character to be particularly compelling. It, no, it's not perfect. There's a lot of weird stuff in it. There's a lot of divergences that didn't need to be had. There is some stuff that doesn't add up that could have been teased out a little bit better. But as an entire, like, I was, I was. Moved. I was compelled. I was happy to have sat down those 13, 14 hours to let this wild, explosive thing kind of happen. And I'd be curious to see where it would go in the future, especially going into like...
1: Yale and California.
0: Yes. Especially going to Yale and California. No, especially going to a decade that I have a little bit more of a familiarity with culture-wise, I think that would have been a cool kind of connection to see. So, yeah, let it happen. But, of course, it won't. So, Ian, with that being said, would you renew?
1: I would not renew. No, I I was done with it. I was uh, frustrated by it overall. Uh, I would take the Mylene storyline and I would watch that. I actually thought that was the stronger half of things, not just the way that they shot the disco scenes and those were overall a little bit more fun. Um, But that music industry part of it was, I don't know. I thought it was done actually pretty well. I didn't think they dropped too much of it. I really thought that the get-down aspect of everything was was more um, disorganized. Uh, if they just did my lean storyline and the politics, I think I would have been happy. Um, yeah, just let David Simon do the Bronx in the 70s uh, during disco instead of doing the deuce.
0: I think that's really interesting because – I would have flipped it, personally. I would have rather had the, the get-down story than the Mylene story. I think it's because I have kind of seen the Mylene story before. You know, you've seen the sure. ingenue who gets plucked into this industry that becomes overwhelming, and she gets thrown in a bunch of different directions, and, hey, she de- does coke, and, oh, maybe she sees the aftermath of her dad committing suicide on the altar of his megachurch, you know? the general stuff, but, oh, it's also not really her father because she's Francisco's daughter biologically. We also didn't touch on that part of things. And yeah, there was just, no. I'm being, I'm being a little sarcastic, but I do think that
1: No, you're right on with that. I'm contradicting myself, really, because usually I say I would rather see something new than something good. And the get down aspect of things was absolutely original. They really did try something. Um, but I I was I just never cared. I never ever cared about them or it or the band. Uh, I didn't care about their success. I thought Shao Lin was like, a, I did not like that character at all. He oh, really? was like, "Hey, we're brothers. Oh, I'm gonna throw a fit." hey, we're brothers. Oh, I'm going to throw a fit. I get that the idea is he ha- he doesn't have a family, so he's mm-hmm. not as good at, I don't know, being friends with somebody. But it felt like they fell into a very tired pattern for me. And then I was like, why is this 25-year-old guy hanging out with these teenagers? Like That part of it never really made sense to me. Uh, the fact that like he was even drinking with them on that rooftop in the first place, felt kind of forced. Uh, The whole thing with they pushed the car into the water with the dead body of the kid, and that's what united them all. Um, I felt like they kind of dropped that aspect of the story, and so the one strong thing about it then, like, just didn't even come back. Um, Yeah, but isn't that just, you know,
0: kind of the nature of trauma too? It's like it happens – it binds you. You don't necessarily think about it all the time, but it still creates that bond that can't be broken by all the weird BS that happens when you're sort of throwing tantrums and not getting what you want, which is what happens on the surface too. I thought that that like kind of underscored a lot of the underlying motivations that sort of kept them tethered to each other.
1: I gotta say, I actually felt like I had to figure that out for myself. I didn't feel like they were the ones telling me that. Um But that was the thing I kinda liked about. It,
0: I, I but I think that's at least to me, that was what I found interesting about the show was like I didn't think about that until I said it. But then it was there though. It just wasn't on the surface as much. But and even so, like
1: they uh run into the brother of the kid that was killed. And they're like going to beat him up, but he's so traumatized by his brother being killed that they don't beat him up. And then they use that part of the story in order to find out that someone in Cadillac's crew was turned on them. But they never go back to the warlords at all. It's like they don't – it would have been stronger if they would have gone back to these people that used to terrorize them and then started raising them up too. But instead they just – they disappeared and – even though I'm someone who's here passionately talking about a TV show and I could really talk about the merits of like writing and what makes something compelling and what doesn't their enthusiasm for music never made me care about why they were doing the things that they did. Like, well, first of all, uh, rah, rah. Yeah. Ra-Ra and Boo-Boo never seemed all that invested other than the fact that they were just with the guys, so they might as well do it. Oh, and by the way, Boo-Boo has this secret Michael Jackson talent that nobody <laughs> knew about. Um, I thought it was cool when Ra-Ra, could, he couldn't do it at their beat, but then he could spit faster than them. I thought yeah. that was cool, and he, he found himself in the art form there, but... It was like the way that it was like gang warfare, but it was with music, and there were the different segments of hip-hop that hated each other, but then they're all willing to come together to defend in a big show the purity of their art form, even though... In every other episode, everyone just flies off the handle and beats each other up over nothing. (laughs) And all of a sudden at the end, they're singing and dancing together and talking about peace and love and Zulu Nation and whatever. No, I just, I, I I didn't like it. I did not like it. What it made me interested in though, I thought the best part was episode two or three when they discovered how Grandmaster Flash does the get down part using yeah. the crayon. I really, that was cool. really liked that. And what it made me interested in was learning more about hip hop and maybe watching a documentary about it. No, I didn't care about Zeke at all. All right. I I
0: like the character side of that. I like the idea of like big scope with an intimate perspective and with the extra little flair, it made me interested in what was happening and why it was happening. And I, I, one of the other sort of elements that I think kind of, it was, I guess not subtle, and it wasn't really that integral, but I, it did kind of ground it a little bit was the use of the sort of archival B-roll that they had throughout the show that they used to kind of transition things. Like the show uses in, as kind of an editing technique, they kind of throw in real footage of what the Bronx was looking like at the time to sort of use as almost like establishing shots like to remind the audience yeah we are being a little soapy yeah we are being a little over the top but this is based in a story that mattered to a lot of people to a huge community and it it had a, a clear passion and reverence for it that i think kind of came through in the
1: storytelling side of things So I was invested. I think that's totally fair. I think the thing that frustrated me mostly and why I couldn't quite connect with it was it did feel like I was watching four different TV shows sometimes. Uh, Sometimes it was really big. Sometimes it was campy. Sometimes it was bozzy. Sometimes it was soapy. Sometimes it felt like legitimate good drama to me. But uh, I don't think it quite found its voice or its tone. And I did think that some of the storylines were on a rinse and repeat cycle uh, and that the big emotional moments were not necessarily earned. So I pity you. Yeah, look at that. Pity. (sighs) I watched 13 or 14 hours of this over the course of two and a half days. So uh, I tried to like it. I did. I do get like, I guess I did
0: have some breaks from it because I watched it over a little bit more of a spread out period of time. So maybe that does kind of I could see how you would be exhausted by it.
1: Yeah, but I also, I binged Queens. Like, I was literally thinking about it. I was like, I would rather watch Queens because at least Queens, in Queens, like, nothing has to make sense, really. (laughs) You know, like, they do a good job of letting you know off the bat that everything's going to get really crazy really quick, and they're going to move on. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like... I know what I'm getting myself into with queens. With this, it was like, oh, this is good. Oh, I'm bored. Oh, okay, here we go. Cool dance scene. All right, I don't care about this. Like, I, I, f- I felt very much all over the place. Couldn't commit. All right. Any lingering thoughts before we wrap this up? Oh yeah. Uh, Fat Annie had such a good quote. She was like, "I'm gonna shove this dog so far up your ass, you're gonna be burping farts." I don't even remember the context of this exactly, but, oh, Mylene is given the how much do you want it speech from the producer, and she goes, I am the pudding, which was her, I am the danger. (laughs) Oh, God. Ooh, a good Giancarlo Esposito line. Your brother loves you very much, Ramon. Well, he should love me less and respect me more. I was like, whoa, Giancarlo. Nice. Ian, where
0: can people find us?
1: You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at OneAndDoneTV. You can email us, OneAndDonePod at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts. Let us know if you have any shows that we should review. Um... You can Venmo me at Hamil Chin at any time with any amount of money. Uh, someone did Venmo me 69 cents, which I really appreciated. Uh, so <laughs> that's fine. Uh, if you want to keep that as an ongoing thing, I'll take that. Um, always go ahead and get yourself a large pan scraper. They will change your life when you're doing the dishes.
0: How to with John Wilson will change your life more.
1: Uh, I'm almost done with season two, by the
0: way. Good. Good, good, good.
1: All right. Then I guess that'll do it. Time to cancel this episode. Record scratch. Brought to you by Lack of Hustle Media.